Let's begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Gracious and loving God, we pray that you be with us this evening. We pray for the continued pour outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us to open up our minds and our hearts to hear your word. We pray that you bless our parish, bless our families, make us always grow stronger in our faith, especially in our reception and devotion to the Eucharist. We pray this through Christ our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, God and In trying to determine a theme, uh, Father Remick was pretty clear he would like something done, uh, a reflection on the Eucharist. And probably the easiest thing to, uh, that could have been done was just to um, photocopy the section out of the Catholic Catechism, hand it out to you, and then we can go ho all go home and have a glass of wine. That would be the easy part. Um, but I'm going to approach the, uh, the Eucharist from a little different angle. Um, usually in a catechism, we will have uh, definitions to define what a sacrament may be or what the church is. Um, there are these definitions. The scriptures don't do it that way. The scriptures paint a picture. And the picture that's being uh, painted goes back into the Old Testament. So in order to be able to understand um, the depth, or maybe to understand deeper, uh, what, we, what we have in this Eucharist, uh, I'm going to do that, to go back and start with the Old Testament. And what we see in the, uh, in the scriptures is, again, not so much of a definition. Uh, pictures are painted, and those pictures that are painted are in the form of people and personalities, in, in situations, sometimes conflict, Sometimes it's a, a battle. Sometimes a, it's a revelation from God. But in, in, in the scriptures, again, it's, it's these pictures that are painted in, in the form of people and their personalities and how God works with each and every one of them in terms of his revelation. And so that's, the, that's going to be my approach to both of these evenings uh, as well as tomorrow evening to go through parts of the liturgy, the mass, uh, and then look at how the church has painted a picture there in terms of our liturgical experience as well. And if we have time maybe to uh, have a couple of hymns, sing a couple of uh, hymns, uh, Eucharistic hymns, uh, and then to look at how what, what's being said in those hymns. As biblicists, uh, we like to think of ourselves as uh, being the best interpreters of the scriptures. In reality, probably the best interpreters of scripture are artists and people who write hymns because they put it in very concrete forms that's palatable, that we understand, that we, that we get. My starting point is going to be uh, something which uh, I've preached for years, so some of you may have heard this before, but it, it bears repeating and also, uh, as I say, uh, in my very humble but yet correct opinion, it's correct. <laughs> so if you've heard it before, just bear with me that the most important thing that we have in life, the most important thing we have in life is relationship. We who live in Florida and we stay here, we're acquainted with the idea of uh, hurricanes, tornadoes. They will inconvenience us. Sometimes they'll destroy our homes, damage our businesses. Uh, put us through great inconveniences of being without electricity for a week or two weeks, uh, and they're just really a pain. And yet we do know that we're going to recover from these things. In some form or fashion, you know, uh, the governor will, will have enough people on standby to come in to, from different electric companies to come in and, you know, get us all wired up again. Uh, sometimes we get scared because there's not enough gas or <laughs> toilet paper or whatever, whatever it may be. But we know we're going to get through it. And so those things don't deter us. And that's why I say the most important thing we have in life is relationship. And on the human level, it's the relationship with our family and our friends. What causes the greatest amount of pleasure and excitement and being content is when those relationships are going fine. When there's peace in the family, 
those times when families get together and they're great encounters, uh, we know that the, you know, life doesn't get much better than that. Now, I don't know why we invented Thanksgiving because it's usually the excuse to have family fights. You know, it's like, why am I putting myself through this? You know, it always ends up, you know, arguing or fighting or something. Um, and the things that cause the greatest amount of anguish in our lives are relationships. When there's communication is not good between husband and wife, when there have been arguments or fights, and maybe in the depths of uh, your heart, you may think, does my spouse still love me? Because of those arguments and those dis uh, disagreements. Now, I know that uh, Father uh, Remick has guaranteed me that that doesn't occur with any of you parishioners, married couples. That's over at Assumption Parish, not here. <laughs> at, uh, all those people over there, that's where there's all the pro family problems are. Uh, not here at San Jose. But again, the, the, on, that, on that human level, the most important thing we've got is human relationship. The greatest amount of joy and also can cause the greatest amount of pain. Death, when someone's sick. On that vertical level, the greatest, that relationship between ourselves and God. And when we were always, when we were in the second grade, for most of us, um, we were taught a word that refers to relationship, and it's called grace. And we were taught, be in the state of grace, or we out of the state of grace. And it was the church's attempt to say, if we're in the state of grace, then we, our relationship with God is good. Um, even in common parlance, we'll use the term uh, are you in my good graces, or have you fallen out of my good graces? Meaning, are we in a good relationship or not in a good relationship? And so that idea, that word for grace, again, as the church has tried to define uh, different types of states of grace, what type of grace am I in? What type of grace relationship is sanctifying? Is, is it that is an actual grace, an actual relationship? So all of those attempts, and when we talk about the Eucharist and get into the discussion of the Eucharist, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that idea of how we come into a better relationship with God through the reception of the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So fundamental to, to the, uh, the discussion on the Eucharist or the sacrament is this idea of it's, it's a relationship. We may not think of that when we come to the Eucharist. That may be a concept that wouldn't, just wouldn't click that what we're doing is we're fortifying that relationship between ourselves and the rest of the church, as well as on that vertical level, our relationship with Jesus Christ and the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so fundamental, you know, I like to think and you, I like to use a lot of images and metaphors. Um, and, you know, when you go to build a house or a building, uh, you dig a very strong, try to make a very strong foundation. And so the backhoes will come in, they'll dig out, they'll dig, dig deep, and then they'll put in rebar and cement. And the reason is to maintain, a, to have a solid foundation upon which to build that building or that house or whatever. And it's the same thing in terms of as we get started on this uh, discussion of the Eucharist. Foundational to it, part of that rebar, part of that cement, part of that concrete, is the idea that we're talking fundamentally about a relationship. And as I mentioned, a lot of times we wouldn't think of just starting a discussion on the Eucharist with the idea, the concept of relationship. But that is fundamental. It's foundational. And as we go through, I'll be bringing that up and reminding us of that in terms of the relationship between ourselves, the community, uh, and God himself. I'd like to, uh, in terms of the personalities of the Bible, I'm going to start with Abraham um, because when we look at that relationship between God and Abraham and, you know, when he makes the covenant, uh, the Lord appears to Abraham and there's a revelation, uh, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And the covenant is formed. That relationship is established. Now, what God promises to Abraham is what we refer to as a this world eschatology. That's, a, you know, the word eschatology is one of those $10 words you, you, know, you learn in theology. Um, when I was in the seminary, I'd come home, and my father would have his own business. And he would say, now, Stevie, he said, uh, use some of those $10 words with my friends that I'm paying for. 
It's cost me a lot of money to put you through seminary. So use, impress my friends with some of those $10 words you're learning. And eschatology is one of those. It's very simple. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, eschate, eschaton. In English, it's eschaton. And all it means is the, the end or the purpose, the finality. What's the purpose of life on earth? Uh, you know, what's the purpose or the finality? And if you notice those promises that God gave to Abraham, they all deal with uh, things in this world. That is to say, he promises Abraham a land, okay? It's a degree of our geographical land. We just returned from there. He promises Abraham and Sarah they're going to have children as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sands on the seashore. Again, it's something that you can see. It's very concrete. It's this world. He says to Abraham, and you'll be a blessing to all nations. That is, in the present time. You do not hear what we refer to, which comes much later uh, in the scriptures and develops, is what we call a next world eschatology. That's when you hear Jesus say, and your reward will be great in heaven. Not necessarily in this world. This world may be filled with pain and agony and the veil of tears. But it's that your reward will be in the next world. And so in the Old Testament, especially early Old Testament, the idea of, uh, you know, I'm doing this so I'm going to get into heaven was not a concept. It just didn't exist as a concept. There was a belief in the afterworld. In other words, you know, you're sitting there talking with someone and then, you know, something happens, you're not talking, you're lying on the ground dead. What happened? What, you know, what's the difference? And the difference is obviously you've died, your spirit has left. But for the, the Hebrew people, they didn't, they didn't believe in terms of this next world eschatology. Your reward is here on this earth. And that's the most important thing. And so for the Hebrew people, the idea of being concrete, of feeling and knowing those rewards here on this earth is important. When people died, no matter who you are, you will go to a place called Sheol. And probably the best definition of Sheol that I know of is that as you're driving down a street and you see an old junkyard of old cars that have been crushed and stacked on each other, that's Sheol. Just, you just go there. Nothing good, nothing wrong, nothing evil. It's not the fires of hell. It's not the glory of heaven. It's just exist. And it doesn't make any difference if you're a Kia or a Maserati. You're all going to the same place, being stacked on each other, period. That's, that's all it is. The idea of an afterlife with rewards or punishment comes later. And we'll explain how that comes later throughout the scriptures. But the, the, the key element in terms of this, this revelation to Abraham is the idea that it exists here right now. And it's a very key point in terms of the Eucharist. That the Eucharist exists in our world. That the Eucharist exists in the present. And one of the difficulties during COVID, and maybe COVID it could, this is going to take a while to think this stuff out, COVID may have actually done us a favor in terms of our faith in the Eucharist. Because when we are, you know, maybe we just never thought in terms of like, would there ever be a time when we would not be able to receive the Eucharist? Was that even a concept in our minds before 2020? It was like something you'd never think of. Or the idea that churches would actually be closed. How many of us thought of that? I mean, even conceived of that. It's like, it's not something I would even, no, it's not going to happen. It couldn't happen. There's no way that's going to happen. And the reality is, in our own present life, it did. So the idea of the Eucharist and us being appreciative of the Eucharist in terms of in our present world, very much like those promises to Abraham, the idea that this is a promise for the Jesus Christ has given to us to be lived in the present on a regular basis. And so when we look at those promises to Abraham, say, how does that affect our whole concept of the Eucharist? It's fundamental to it. When we pray for things, we pray for someone's recovery. We pray that, you know, your children are going to do well in school. 
You pray that you'll find that job that you need. You pray in thanksgiving. That's a this world eschatology. We're praying for things in our present world, things that we need, things that we survive on. And there's nothing, like I said, there's nothing wrong with that, what we call this world eschatology, because we function in it. But I want to emphasize that in terms of the reception of the Eucharist or the Eucharist itself, it's the idea that we have it in the present. It's not a future type of thing. We experience it today. And so moving on and looking at the idea of a relationship, it's the idea of a relationship in the present time, in our time. And therefore, when we are not able to have it in our time, what happens? And we see people were very upset. Believe me, the priests were upset. The bishops were upset. No one was happy about the whole situation with the idea of turn, you know, closing our churches, not being able to receive the Eucharist. Some priests became very creative and tried to how to address that. And the reason they did is because they didn't want the faithful for any of us to be without that reception, to be able to feed us spiritually in our present day and age. So that this world eschatology as part of the Eucharist is extremely important. The idea of saying, well, you know, um, I'm going to, um, you know, uh, when, I, when I get my, my act together, when I, you know, when I can uh, get my whole life to be perfect, I'll go to the Eucharist. Hello, is anybody home? <laughs> it's like, uh, I can remember uh, being in the second grade and, uh, you know, receiving First Communion, and I still have the memory of the actual day, and we were leaving the church after the reception. Uh, my parents were driving the car, and I was uh, kneeling in the back seat. And I wasn't kneeling because I was pious. Uh, I was kneeling because I wanted to look at the church. And I remember telling myself, I will never, ever sin again. Now, I was seven. Fat chance of that ever happening, okay? It, uh, but again, it's, it's that idea that the Eucharist is, you know, the, the Pope says, uh, Pope Francis says, you know, um, the, Eucharist for, the Eucharist is for those not who have perfected their lives. The church is a church of sinners trying to become saints. And part of the process of in that saintly process is the reception of the Eucharist. And so that idea from Abraham is an extremely important concept in terms of looking at our, and having a sense of depth and an appreciation of the Eucharist. The next personality, and again, it's, it's, it's a personality that's painted, very colorful personality, quite frankly, and that's the person of Moses. And even from the very beginning, in the beginning of his life, you know, the Pharaoh had said what? Throw all of the male Hebrew babies into the, into the river. Drown them, kill them. And so he does end up in the river in a little bushel basket. And he's saved. And then, of course, you know, the Pharaoh's go, or daughters go down to bathe. Uh, they hear the baby crying. They pull the baby out. The baby is saved from the water. She adopts the baby. And who, of course, does she put in charge uh, to uh, raise the child, but uh, Moses' own mother. And so it starts out almost like a fairy tale, if you will. And then, of course, it gets a little dark because Moses uh, gets into this argument with one of the Egyptians. He kills him, um, buries him. He thinks, you know, no one saw it. He's going to get away with this crime. Um, and then what happens, you know, one of the television series, uh, you know, about crime comes in and solves the crime, and it's him. And now he has to flee. So you've got basically a person that's a murderer who's fleeing to save his own life now a second time. And the irony is that's who God calls. God calls this person Moses, and, you know, he not only that, he can't speak that well. And so the Lord says, well, you know, get Aaron. He doesn't stutter as much. He is not as nervous or whatever. But the, the, the thing you have to, to look at is in terms of the person of Moses and what's going to happen with Moses, as we'll see, is that the, God doesn't take the most perfect person 
to be his leader and to be the one that's going to have all this confidence between God and God's relationship with Moses and Moses' relationship with God. It's not the most perfect in terms of it. And yet he does call Moses. And when Moses, you know, it's, a, it's a kind of a, uh, an interesting dynamic between Moses and the Pharaoh, especially with the ten plagues. Because the whole idea is Moses goes in to talk to the Pharaoh about the idea of what? Taking my people out into the desert. Let's have this religious experience. Um, and then, ironically, Moses convinces the Pharaoh to do it. And so Moses leaves with the idea, it's done. It's a done deal. And then the scriptures, and it's a very interesting phrase, God hardened the heart of the Pharaoh. And, you know, if you're thinking, it's like, whoa, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Is Moses and Aaron being set up? They convince, God tells them to go back to Pharaoh and to convince him. They do. They succeed. They leave, okay, it's, it's a done deal, we're out of here. Why would God then go behind Moses' back to harden the heart of the Pharaoh? And it's a good question. The answer in terms of the being, the Pharaoh was seen as divine. And so the whole question is, who's really in charge, Pharaoh or God? And if God can take this divine person, the Pharaoh, and change his heart, then who's really in control? It's God. It's Yahweh. It's the one who's God of all of the entire universe. And so we go through these ten plagues. The last one, of course, is the, uh, the Passover. So all of these plagues, it seems like as, as you, if, if you're reading it for the first time, you'd be like, where's this story going? I don't get it. There's, there's these contradictions. It's only when you get to the tenth plague in terms of the idea of the Passover. And that's going to be one of our fundamental first, if you will, in terms of coming to appreciate the Eucharist. Because the Lord says, you know, to Moses, tell all the people, all the Israelites, do this. Take a one-year-old lamb without blemish. You're to roast it. You take the blood and you have to put it on what? The doorpost and the lentils. But you have a meal, that Passover meal. And that Passover meal, you're going to, and if, and if you don't have enough in your own family, you do what? You bring in others so that it's all consumed in one night. Here's how you're to eat with unleavened bread, staff in hand, getting ready to leave. And the Passover meal was seen at that time in terms of the, what's called the Seder. The Passover meal was that which saved the people. It brought them safety. It brought them the reassurance and salvation that they were going to be spared. And the Lord says, if I don't see the blood on your doorposts or the lentils, your firstborn, whether it's animal or human, will be sacrificed, will die. And so this idea of participating in the meal, the idea of the blood, blood's going to be very important in our discussion. The blood's going to come back time and time and time again. And Jesus took the chalice. This is the chalice of what? My blood. The idea of them being at the Seder, the last meal, the last supper. In Israel today, there are Israeli Roman Catholics and not a lot, and they have their mass in modern Hebrew. And if you look at, the, there's not a published uh, Roman Missal, because there aren't enough of them, so what they do is they make photocopies of the sacramentary, another Roman Missal. Uh, but on the cover, it literally says in modern Hebrew, Christian Seder. That's the phrase that's used for the mass the Christian Seder versus the Jewish Seder. It's still seen, the Mass is seen uh, in, the, in, the, in the eyes and the light of the idea of a Seder meal, of how we're going to do this. 
And so the elements that take part in terms of commanding this Seder is that it has to be the community coming together again for a meal. And when we look at the Eucharist, it's that idea of coming together for a meal. Now we're going to talk about the idea of sacrifice also because we say what is the holy sacrifice of the Mass and we're going to get to that. But another fundamental dimension of it is that what we're talking about is a meal together. We talk about the altar of the Word and the altar of the Eucharist. And that idea of the altar in terms of this is a meal. Sometimes um, people will ask me, uh, my brothers are good for this. I always pick on my brothers because, well, first of all, they pick on me. Uh, I was number five, so... Um, but they'll say, they've said to me in the past, why do I have to go to Mass on Sunday? You know, they love to do deep sea fishing. It says, can't I just say a prayer on my boat? And I said, sure you can. No one's going to stop you from praying on your boat. I pray that you have a good catch. Because I don't like to fish, but I love to eat fish. And it kind of bothered me. I was like, well, you know, it is the rule of the church. But then, then I started thinking this thing out, you know. Uh, I lived in Tallahassee, where I was at FSU at St. Thomas More. And um, on Sunday night, on Sunday night in our family, it was a command performance. You had to be at supper for all of my brothers, sisters-in-laws, nephews, and nieces. Unless, you know, your family was doing something, um, uh, sister-in-law's family was doing something. And so the Sundays I was able to get off and go home, it was a great time. My mother loved to cook. Uh, see all my brothers, nephews, and nieces, you know, my parents. Um, and it, it, was, it was, but again, it was, it was a great time being together. And I remember driving back once to Tallahassee, and I was thinking as I was driving, I said, you know, um, last night my brother Tommy and his wife Dottie and the kids weren't there. And I said, you know, I really, I, I literally missed seeing them at dinner. And then as I'm driving along a little further, I'm thinking, if I miss them when they're not there, I wonder if they miss me when I'm not there. Now, I never had the courage to ask him. I was afraid to get an answer. No, we don't. <laughs> and so when I talk to people, it's like, why do we have to go to Mass? Well, again, I started out with a story. It was a command performance on my father's part. You're going to be here. We want the family to come together. We want to be together. And I want to see my sons and my daughter-in-laws. I want to see my nephews and my nieces, grandchildren, grandsons, granddaughters. I want to see them. And that's the way I like to think in terms of the requirement for Sunday Mass. It's a requirement, but it's the idea, it's the family getting together. People who have been baptized, people who share the, the meal, the Eucharist. It's a time for all of us to come together. And the church says it's so important, like in families, it's so important. You know, it's, it's the rule of the family. It's important enough. And you know, sometimes you can be at uh, a mass for... your. Now, this doesn't only happen in the Catholic Church, this happens in Luther, any church, Lutheran, Episcopalian. Generally, people sit in the same seat. At a, several of my uncle's funerals uh, in the Lutheran Church, the pastor would say, the Germans sit over here, the Finns sit here. Everybody sits in the same place. I don't care what tradition you're in, religious tradition. And sometimes, you know, you may over the years not even know the family that's sitting in front of you, or a few seats over but yet you see what you see their children grow and sometimes you may get to know them and find out you know where their children are going here for school or for college or for work and again you, you, you start becoming part of their lives they become part of yours but it's the idea of the meal the common meal together as a family but unfortunately a lot of times we look at it as what it's the rule we only look at the rule we don't look at what the rule is trying to do for us, of how the rule is trying to facilitate the idea of coming together for a meal, to be nourished on this, and coming together as a family. 
And so again, I'd like for you to rethink if that's you know, where, where you are in terms of it's the rule I have to go to Mass on Sunday or is it the invitation for the family to get together? And the church saying, this is how important we think family is. And the family here at San Jose or the family at you know, St. Michael's Church or whatever the parish it may be, it's important for that family to come together. Um, this, when we look at Moses and that, that Seder supper, he leads the people out into the desert. But that becomes, again, it becomes fundamental to our concept of Eucharist, that idea of the Seder and the idea of the miracle that occurs at the Eucharist. We're going to look at, not this evening but tomorrow, in terms of the liturgical prayers of what's being said that we take ordinary bread and wine, which we know, we, we, we know this as Catholics. And it's transformed into the idea through the words and the prayers of the priest that's validly ordained. It becomes the body and blood of Christ. It is our means of salvation. Just as the Seder meal was the means of salvation for the Jews, the Eucharist becomes the Seder meal for us in terms of our salvation. And so this idea of looking at the kind of a prequel, if you will, of the Eucharist is found in that Seder meal. As Moses leads the people through uh, the desert and they, they get into to Mount Sinai, what happens is that on Mount Sinai, the t not only the Ten Commandments given, but also a lot of other commandments are given. And if you read uh, the latter part of Exodus and into Leviticus, uh, into uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, some of the laws uh, sound a little ridiculous um, because some of the laws, it sounds like you're in the office of Cohen and Cohen. Um, no, I'm serious. You read it, it sounds like you're in a law office, uh, your Jewish law office. Uh, you know, what happens if um, I have six bulls and one of my bulls gets out and, and gores, you know, you? Well, you have certain legal rights. And so it'll talk about all those legal rights. And like I say, when you're reading this stuff, it's like, my gosh, what's this all about? It's, a, it's about the idea of trying to regulate society as well. But also in the regulation, what's given is this, is what about the idea of sacrifices? Of the 12 tribes that come out of Egypt and go into the promised land, there's only one uh, tribe that is not given a parcel of land, and that's the Levites. It's the priest. They're not given a parcel of land. And the idea that is that they're going to be above that because of their function and their work in terms of offering the sacrifices. And so what you actually have in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, you have the actual ordination rite of the, the priest. It's actually there. Uh, when I was teaching this, I, um, I got to the point when you get to you know, if you're reading the Bible, you get through Genesis. I mean, that's a great, a great book, you know. And then you get into, um, you know, Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea, and that's exciting. Uh, then all of a sudden you get to about chapter 26, and it's like you come to a, a standstill. Because what you're given is a description about how to build the Ark of the Covenant. And what I'm going to explain in a few minutes, the tabernacle. That's right, it's the same word that we use for our word, tabernacle. And the tabernacle was really, it was, uh, you had to have curtains and curtain rods, and it's about uh, 75 feet by 150 feet, uh, and it's where they're going to offer the sacrifices. When I was teaching this, I, I, when I'd get to this, it would always be a stumbling block for me as a professor on how I was going to teach this, how I was going to get these, these guys to, to appreciate and to take seriously uh, because it becomes very, very boring, I'll just tell you. And this is to be with this type of wood and this type of gold and this long and this many cubits and this many cubits. And it gives a description of everything. A description, again, a very vivid description of the ordination of the priest. So one summer, I got this brilliant idea, and it had to be brilliant because it came from me. <laughs> I'm not going to teach this anymore. I'm not going to teach this anymore. I refuse to teach it. They're going to have to build it. 
And so I took and divided the class up into groups of seven. They would have to elect among that group of seven. One would have to be elected. Who do you want to have to be the priest? So they would, each group would elect the priest, okay? Everyone else in the group had to build something that went into the tabernacle. So they had to build the candelabra. Or they had to build the walls of the tabernacle. Or they had to build the, the, uh, the table of bread or the altar of sacrifice, or the altar of incense, or the Ark of the Covenant. And all of these are the accoutrements that go into that tabernacle. And what happens is the priest would be ordained inside that tabernacle. And so Moses and Aaron would have the sons of Aaron ordained. And again, it goes through, it talks about the first thing they would be, there's a, a laver, that's where you would wash your hands or you'd wash your body or whatever. In terms of getting ready for the sacrifice, you purify yourself. And so the priest would have to be purified. And so what they would do, they'd bring them out naked. We didn't do this. <laughs> I just assumed they had a bath that morning. They would come out and they, the priest would have to uh, be washed, bathed, and then he would have to clothe himself. And again, the description of the priest's vestments are very, very uh, you know, distinct in terms of uh, all the... So all the priests had to build their own little vestments, make their own little vestments for the ordination rite that we we're going to have. They could use anything they wanted. One year, one group built the entire thing out of graham crackers. I was amazed. I was the ingenuity and the creativity. But the whole point that I'm trying to make about this tabernacle was what happened is they moved from the idea of the Seder into the idea of the sacrifices. And in the first eight chapters of the book of Leviticus, it tells about all of those different sacrifices, the Holocaust offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the libation offerings, and the reason for those offerings. Remember when I talked about the idea of being in a state of grace? That's what this is about. If you had committed a serious sin, even a minor sin, if there was a purification because a, a woman had gone through her period, any type of fluid that leaves your body was considered uh, immoral. And so you had to go through these uh, rituals to be rectified, to be put back in the state of grace to be in terms of it. And so what happens is that they would talk about the idea of the Holocaust very, very clear. And so when we did the ordination rite, um, they built the altar, and then we'd bring the, uh, the priest out. Uh, we'd go through the ordination rite. Uh, the ordination rite, you would, for instance, take, uh, you'd take the animals, you'd bring the animals out. I had uh, some animals that we sacrificed, took them, cut their necks. They were stuffed animals, but, you know, uh, it... <laughs> Serve the purpose, serve the purpose. Uh, uh, then I would have, uh, there's a, one of the uh, ladies that works at the seminary, her name is um, Kip, and uh, she's an animal lover. And so I would have her sew it up for next year. <laughs> loved it, she loved doing it. But, uh, but then we would, um, you know, take them, you sprinkle the blood around the altar, you sprinkle the altar with so much blood, then you take the blood of the bull and you put it on the big toe of the priest and on the earlobe. Again, it's a very, very extensive type of thing. And you do this seven days in a row. But the idea is these priests are ordained for offering sacrifices. And again, the church picks that up. And so when we talk about the Eucharist as the sacrifice of the Mass, it comes out of that concept of the idea of there's going to be a sacrifice and it's going to involve blood. Blood was seen as the lifeline. It was seen as sacred. And the idea that this, this blood is going to be used in terms of the sacrifice was very, very important. When the church picks this up, what happens at the Last Supper? We move from the idea of what? The bloody sacrifice to the unbloody sacrifice. The bloody sacrifice on Calvary and then the idea of the unbloody sacrifice in terms of the Last Supper. And my point in this is to say, when we get to, by the time we get to the Eucharist in terms of Jesus, uh, then what we've got is a very well-established 
concept and understanding of reconciling ourselves back to God, trying to get ourselves back into the state of grace with the idea of how these sacrifices took place, how this Seder meal took place. And all of this in terms of, you know, uh, uh, on the day of uh, Yom Kippur, which is considered uh, for the Jewish people from the very beginning, a very sacred day. It was a day of reconciliation with God. Um, and they would bring in uh, two goats, two rams. One they would sacrifice, and the other they literally would sprinkle, sprinkle with blood and send them out into the desert. And the idea of sprinkling the blood on it and letting it go into the desert is the idea and the concept that our sins are forgiven on this day of Yom Kippur. That, that Yom Kippur is still celebrated among the Jewish people. Again, probably the best uh, thing we would have to say in terms of using it is like Wednesday there's going to be the idea of uh, confession, the forgiveness of sins. That's what Yom Kippur is about. Now, I don't know about you, but I know for myself, I think I'd rather take a sacrifice an animal than rather go to the confession. I got to tell all my sins? You got to be kidding me. Let me. I'll buy a one-year-old lamb. It's easier than going to confession. It's like, it's, it's embarrassing. It's like, ugh. Do I have to tell me everything? Well, the venial sins you can leave out. But the rest, hey, you have to tell, yes. But the idea behind this, 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 this concept of the Eucharist is found in the Old Testament. And it, it's, it's, it's a rich history and a rich tradition to it. And this is, this is way before we even get to Jesus and the idea of the unbloody sacrifice. The sacrifice of, on Calvary and the unbloody sacrifice. But the reason I, I'm going to such depth in this is, first of all, to give us a deeper understanding of what's behind the Eucharist. Of what is, again, you know, what's that foundation that we have in terms of the Eucharist? And what does it mean? What's the significance for the Jewish people and the idea of Jesus as Jewish taking this concept? And now he's going to have to go through what? His own, his own death in terms of the, the shedding of his blood. You know, when we get to... Um, when we get to the Lord Jesus and the, the idea of him in the Garden of Gethsemane, it, it's not by chance the idea that he sweated blood, that he realized the mission that's so important in terms of the reason he was sent is now coming to, if you will, a climax in the Garden of Gethsemane. Those who were on the, uh, the, the uh, tour, the pilgrimage, I pointed out that, you know, when we got to the church of the Gethsemane, Garden of Gethsemane, and we read from the Gospel of Matthew, and three times, you know, remember the three temptations of Jesus in uh, the desert? In the garden, there's a temptation three times. The first, he says to his father, let this cup pass from me. Now, remember the cup. When James and John come, or their mother comes to ask that they sit at the right and left, and when he comes to his kingdom, what does Jesus ask them? Can you drink of the cup about which I'm about to drink? Meaning in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they say, yes. <laughs> and Jesus says, you're right, you will. And they all suffered a martyr, you know, the death of a martyr. But when Jesus gets there, and he goes back and he con confronts and challenges Peter, uh, the apostles, can you not stay awake an hour with me? But Matthew's gospel records that he goes back twice. Two it's this idea of, Lord, uh, can, this, can, can we do this another way? Do I have to go through this? And he knows he can't. He can't change it. It's that human dimension of Christ, which is a very important for us in our Christology, our understanding of who Jesus Christ is, and I think the reason, one of the reasons Matthew records this in the Garden of Gethsemane is to give us a sense, a very true sense, that when we have our crosses to bear, it's not easy. You know, you may get sick and you say, Lord, what sin did I commit that was so bad that I'm so sick? You know, take it away, take it away. We don't want to bear those crosses. In reality, 
I think the message from Matthew's gospel for Jesus Christ is that as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, in reality, he knows, yes, this is my mission. This is ultimately in terms of culminating in the reason I came. And what's he going to leave with us? How is he going to leave? Well, we know it's going to be by his crucifixion, by his passion, death, and ultimately to be overcome in terms of with the resurrection. Those are the two foundational elements in terms of meal and sacrifice. But when we hear these terms, I think to be able to, to have a deeper understanding of where they come from and how we build upon that foundation. It's, it's very important. I'm going to move um, into the New Testament as we begin looking at it. Um, I'm, going to, I'm not going to talk about the, uh, the uh, Passover right now of, of uh, Christ at the Seder Supper. Um, I'm going to move to the end of Luke's Gospel on the road to Emmaus. And then I'm going to come back tomorrow evening with the idea of looking at uh, the Last Supper. But we know what happens at the Last Supper. The Lord said, this is my body, this is my blood. In the road to Emmaus, it's the very day of the resurrection of Christ. It's Easter Sunday when Emmaus occurs. Now, a lot of times we don't read it till, uh, you know, maybe a week or two after Easter. Sometimes, you know, in terms of where it occurs in the lectionary. But what happens on the road to Emmaus is, uh, you know, Cleopas and his partner, you know, they're leaving Jerusalem, and um, Jesus joins them and acts like, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. They uh, challenge him. Uh, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on these last few days? How we were hoping that Jesus would be the one uh, who would redeem Israel. He acts like he doesn't know what he's saying. So then slowly, ever so slowly in that road to Emmaus, what happens is that Jesus now turns the tables and he starts teaching them. And he goes back and he looks at the law and the prophets and the writings about everything about Jesus that had to come true. And so now he's teaching them. They didn't have the New Testament, obviously. It hadn't been written yet. The only thing they had was scriptures, the Old Testament. They get to Emmaus, and what happens? Jesus acts like he's going on further, again, to kind of like, you know, pick them up. And then they convince him to come inside. He comes inside. Uh, they do the breaking of the bread, and they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. Now, what's going on? You have to take a step back and look. What's the dynamics that are found in that road to Emmaus? You have a liturgy of the Word, Jesus explaining the Scriptures, and the liturgy of the Eucharist. They will recognize him in the breaking of the bread. What is Luke trying to do? We've got another two minutes. Nope, wrong one. Pull the rabbit out of this pocket. So the message is I'm speaking too long. <laughs> I wore out the batteries. Where's that ever-ready bunny when I need him, you know? But, uh, and so in, in, in this uh, event from Emmaus, what we hear, what we see, is that what the church identifies as the, uh, the, the mass. We have the liturgy of the word. Jesus is breaking open the scriptures, explaining to them from the only scriptures they had, from the law, the prophets, uh, and the writings about how all of these things in the, in the life of Jesus had to occur to fulfill that Old Testament. And then when they get, like I said, when they get to Emmaus, Jesus acts like he's going on further. They convince him to come in for dinner that's late. Um, he picks up the host, or the, the bread rather, 
and uh, he breaks the bread. And they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. Now, that's a technical term in the New Testament, especially uh, in Luke and Acts. When it talks about the idea of breaking bread, it's a technical term for the Eucharist. And that's what happened in the early church, is that that, that became a, a pat phrase. You know, we use the idea of breaking bread together. We talk about sharing a meal with someone. In the New Testament, especially in Luke Acts, it's used in the context of the idea of the Eucharist. And I'm convinced that I think what St. Luke the Evangelist was doing was trying to show that from the very first day, from Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection, this is what we do. When people say to me, um, you know, the Mass is just made up by the Catholics, um, they put a requirement on it, it's all done in terms of power control. If you want to look at that, you can interpret it that way. That's a way of interpreting it. But there's a totally different way of interpreting it. And Luke gives us that interpretation. And he's trying to convince his, you know, his, his, the people in his parish, as it were, this occurs and this is what we do. And it's only in the Acts of the Apostles, on St. Luke wrote uh, the Acts of the Apostles and the Gospel of Luke, um, that he will describe that after the death and resurrection, after Pentecost, what happens? The believers would come together and they would pray and they would break bread together. They would share the Eucharist. So one of the things I think, again, that's important in terms of looking at this development and having an appreciation of the Eucharist is Luke is telling us it's from the very beginning, it's from the very first day of the resurrection that what we do today in terms of the liturgy of the Word, the altar of the Word, and the liturgy of the Eucharist is from the very first day. It's not something in terms of, you know, something that's, you know, the church in the fourth century of the Middle Ages invented. I'm always kind of amazed that the fundamentalists who claim the right that they know Scripture better than us can't see that when they read the road to Emmaus. And so the disciples, Cleopas and his uh, partner, go back to Jerusalem, they go back to the upper room, and they explain to the apostles what they had experienced and how they came to know Jesus in the breaking of the bread. If you're asking me, you know, where does that leave us? You've got to come back tomorrow night to find out. <laughs> Thank you for your kind attention. Let's please stand for a blessing. Gracious and loving God, we ask you to open our minds and our hearts, to prepare our souls to receive your word. We pray that you bless us during our Lenten journey, bless our families. We pray especially for family members or friends that have fallen away from the church. May they return, that you may spark in them by the gift of the Holy Spirit, a desire to return, a desire to return to the Eucharist. And we pray this through Christ our Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you very much.